Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode is The Great Mormon History Cover-Up. In the past three years, the LDS Church has been issuing a series of essays on its official website. These essays deal with very controversial subjects relating to LDS history and Mormonism in general. The subjects contained in these essays range from Joseph Smith's polygamy to his use of seer stones to find buried treasure, and also using seer stones to translate the Book of Mormon. A number of subjects are covered, and I think it's fair to say that the LDS Church is being more transparent today than it has ever been in its history. There's still room for improvement, but I think that that needs to be said at the outset. Now, as Shakespeare said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Well, in this case, the transparency that the LDS Church is doing today has been thrust upon them, and it's been thrust upon them by the Internet. The fact is that this damaging information that they're finally admitting to in their essays has now become so widely available to the public through the Internet that a decision was apparently made that they needed to go ahead and admit to as much stuff as was out there in order to try and control the information. The question has come up now, what did the church leaders know and when did they know it? In other words, there are some people who are saying that the current church leadership really didn't know about this damaging information. They've been too busy doing church administration, going to meetings, preparing general conference talks, all those sort of things that are part of their job, that they're only finding out about it now and that as soon as they're finding out about it, they're letting the church know. I've heard a number of those people express this opinion. I take a different opinion because I think the evidence shows that the LDS leadership has known about a lot of this damaging information for decades and is only now coming out with it because their attempts to suppress this information has failed, largely due to the Internet. I want to tell you a story. It's a personal story. It goes back to 1978. That's when I was baptized. I was 18 years old, and my brother, uh, let me just go ahead and say that I was the only member in my family, as you might guess, since I was 18 when I got baptized. My brother, however, was a Jehovah's Witness. He was not at all thrilled with me becoming a Mormon, and he gave me some anti-Mormon literature, which he got from his kingdom hall. He brought it home. He gave it to me. I read some of it. I was very disturbed by what I read in this anti-Mormon literature. Specifically, what I read had to do with the Book of Abraham. Now, anybody who is a Mormon knows that the Book of Abraham is a book of scripture that the LDS Church accepts as canonized scripture. And the story on it is that back in 1835, a guy named Michael Chandler made his way to Kirtland, Ohio, where Joseph Smith was living at the time. Joseph Smith bought some mummies and some papyri from Michael Chandler because Joseph Smith was convinced that the papyri contained ancient records. He translated some of that papyri by the gift and power of God, i.e. by revelation. And he came up with the book of Abraham, which Joseph Smith said was a translation from some of the papyri. This anti-Mormon literature, however, told a different story. What it said was that some of that papyri that Joseph Smith used had actually been found. That real Egyptologists had translated it from Egyptian into English. And when they translated it, what they came up with had nothing whatsoever to do with the book of Abraham. This was very upsetting to me, as I say, and I think it's probably upsetting to any Latter-day Saint who encounters this information for the first time. I decided I wanted to find out what was going on. I looked around for someone to ask. Uh, I had just graduated from high school, so a guy in college is obviously a lot more knowledgeable than I am. And I found a guy whose name was Dave Green. He was a member of the church. He'd been a member his whole life. He seemed to know a lot about Mormonism inside and out. So I approached him about it, told him what I'd read in this anti-Mormon literature about the book of Abraham. His response was to get angry. I don't know if he was angry at me for having read this or if he was mad about the subject itself. But what I do know is that he told me in no uncertain terms that this was a lie that this was anti-Mormon literature, that anti-Mormon literature was full of lies. I shouldn't believe anything I read in anti-Mormon literature. In fact, I should not be reading anti-Mormon literature. And what I should read is publications by the church, listen to the church leaders, because they were the ones who would tell me the truth about things. Fast forward to 2016, and the church is releasing these essays. One of these essays deals with the Book of Abraham. And much to my surprise, in this essay, which is published by the church and found on the official church website, 
it says the exact same thing that I was reading in this anti-Mormon literature back in 1978. And it's the exact same thing that I was told by a member of the church in good standing who seemed to know what he was talking about, that this was a lie and that I could not trust what was written in anti-Mormon literature. Basically, what's happening now is that because the information has gotten out of control of the LDS church, with these essays, what they're doing is they are basically admitting the truth of what the anti-Mormons have been saying for decades. So that's that story. I mentioned that there is uh, evidence, I think conclusive evidence, that this isn't something the church is just finding out about now and publishing it in these essays. They've known about it for a long time, and they have taken steps to suppress this negative information, what I call bad stuff for short. So when I say bad stuff, what I mean is negative information about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its history and its truth claims. So you can see why I want to use bad stuff for short. But the smoking gun on this issue is a talk that was given back in 1981 by Elder Boyd K. Packer of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. It's called The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect. This was given in August of 1981 at BYU, and it's important to note that this is a lecture that he gave at a CES conference. CES is short for Church Educational System. That means that he is addressing all the church teachers in the church. That means that he is addressing the people in the church who are called, and many of whom are employed and paid by the church, to teach about the church to students. There are seminary teachers who teach 9th through 12th grade students. There are institute teachers and directors who teach college-age students. And I expect that some people there were also BYU professors who teach religion courses at BYU. So I'm expecting there were hundreds and hundreds of people there to hear this keynote address. And this keynote address is remarkable because it establishes, at least in my mind, beyond any reasonable doubt, that Boyd K. Packer, at least, knew a lot of damaging information about the church, that he did not want the church members to be taught about this damaging information, and he then enlisted the aid of all the church teachers in the CES system to keep this information quiet, to teach only one side of church history, the faith-promoting side, the side that makes the church look good. All the other bad stuff was not to be talked about. So we'll talk more about this later. Uh, this is actually the main point of this episode. But I want to put this talk by Boyd K. Packer in historical context because I think that makes it even more interesting. The talk is given in 1981 at BYU. And what has been going on with the church historian's office at that very time, I think, plays a major role and helps me to understand even better what it is that Boyd K. Packer knew at the time he's giving this talk. This year, 2016, Gregory Prince uh, produced and it was published a really good biography on Leonard Arrington. Leonard Arrington was the church historian from 1972 to 1982. 1982, the church historian's office was closed out. Leonard Arrington was moved to BYU, where he continued his research, but he was no longer the church historian. And as a little bit of background, church historian is not only a historian's office, it's also an ecclesiastical position in the church. The church has basically had a quote-unquote church historian pretty much since 1830 when it was organized and the commandment was received in Revelation that a history of the church be kept. So there have been a number of church historians over the years up to 1972. The remarkable thing is that with Leonard Arrington in 1972, he was the first actual historian to serve in the role of church historian. Prior to this, uh, the people who had served as church historian had been general authorities. They had no training in history per se. It was purely an ecclesiastical office. And after 1982, after Leonard Arrington was basically fired from the job or released from his calling, however you want to look at it, they went back to their old practice of having non-historians be the church historian. The last two church historians, I think, were Elder Jensen and Elder Snow currently, both of whom I believe are lawyers. So it appears that the church likes lawyers to be church historians rather than historians. I think it's remarkable in the first instance that Leonard Arrington was ever called to be historian back in 1972 because it was such a departure from the way the church had operated up till then. It signaled, at least to a lot of people, including Leonard Arrington, that 
the church was entering a new age of openness and transparency that the archives, which had been restricted severely to outside researchers, even Mormon researchers, uh, were now open to Leonard Arrington and his staff, and they made the most of things. And they went in there, they researched things, they went through the archives, they first off organized them, which they were in a terrible state according to the book, but they organized things, they found wonderful things, they found new things, they were able to really advance the cause of history. And a number of publications ensued during this 10-year period. Making this long story short, what happened is that the church decided that it really wasn't interested in having real church history told. By that I mean this, they wanted more to have simply one side of the story told, the faith-promoting side. All the stuff that didn't sound so good or may have cast leaders in a bad light or may have raised questions regarding their prophetic calling, those things were not to be talked about. Those things were to be put to the side and never mentioned. Basically, they were to be suppressed. Now, as part of this podcast, I think it's important that I give you as as best as I am able, the full story, both sides of the story. So what happened, once again, trying to keep up, long story short, there were actually members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles who were in favor of being more transparent, more, more open about the church's history. And those apostles included, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, Elder Haight, Elder Monson, current president of the church, he was one of them, and much to my surprise, Elder Bruce R. McConkie. When I read that in this book, my jaw almost hit the floor. But Elder McConkie was uh, apparently in favor of having a more open history, and he was in favor of the things that Arrington was doing. Now, there were three other apostles who were specifically named who were very much opposed to this open history, and those were Elder Ezra Taft Benson, who, of course, was a senior apostle. There was Elder Marky Peterson, another senior apostle. And then there was a junior apostle who was also very much opposed to telling both sides of the story and having real history told about the church. And that junior apostle's name was Boyd K. Packer. Boyd K. Packer is, of course, the apostle who's giving this talk in 1981 that I'm going to talk about here in a second. The mantle is far, far greater than the intellect. As of 1981, what had happened behind the scenes is that the more moderate voices or the voices in the Quorum of the Twelve that were in favor of more open history had been completely overridden by the more conservative voices, by the senior apostles, plus Boyd K. Packer, who did not like the open history and wanted things to go back to the way they had been before. It was those conservative voices that went out and ended up shutting down the church historian's office with uh, Arrington as the church historian. And this closing out process of the church historian's office and moving Arrington to BYU, where he was able to continue his researches in a position that did not officially represent the church, as church historian does. This had been going on for a couple of years. In other words, the victory had already been won as early as 1980, and everything else was just a fait accompli and closing up the church historian's office. So in August 22nd, 1981, when Boyd K. Packer is giving this talk to the CES people at BYU, the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect, he has already won the victory in shutting down this kind of church history. And in some ways, as I read it, I can see it as sort of a victory lap on his part. And in fact, a number of his comments that he makes in his talk, if you know this background history, you can see that he is talking directly to or referring directly to Leonard Arrington, who is soon to lose his job as the church historian. Uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up in this book, the Leonard Arrington and the Writing of Mormon History Biography, which I cannot pass over because it's simply too juicy, is this. I would say that uh, the story is told over and over again with multiple, multiple instances in this book that Leonard Arrington keeps trying to write open history. He keeps getting rebuffed in a number of ways. And it's sort of a 10-year process of him going in very, uh, very excited, very enthusiastic, very much thinking he's going to be able to write this open history because he's getting all the signs from the people in authority who are talking to him. And then over time, he slowly gets crushed, crushed, crushed until he's a very different Leonard Arrington than when he started out. And he realizes that the fix is in and this kind of history is going to be a thing of the past very soon, as soon as he loses his office. Okay, so having said that, he has a diary entry that's mentioned in this book. If you have the book, it's page 358. This is a diary entry by Leonard Arrington, which he writes not for public consumption, but once again, it's in his diary, and all his diaries were made available to the author of the book, Gregory Prince. This is actually one month before 
Boyd K. Packer gives his talk in August of 19. But he's writing down, and the first part of this quote uh, is just the same old story. What he says is this. What is most disturbing is the apparent feeling on the part of some that we are letting some historical cats out of the bag. What they ought to realize is that the cats have been out of the bag long before we came in, in 1972. So what he's saying there is really what's repeated throughout this book, is that what he's doing is he's not necessarily coming up with lots of new uh, bad stuff about the church. It's there in the archives. What he's doing is trying to use it and incorporate it into a full and honest history of the church, incorporating both the good and the bad together. He goes on, though, he says, um, he says, they ought to realize the cats have been out of the bag long before he came in in 1972 and that our efforts have been to try to minimize the historical impact of those unfavorable facts. Okay, we knew that much. But here's the, the surprising part. And, so he's saying, our efforts have been to try to minimize the historical impact of those unfavorable facts and to put the lid on other facts that can be found by intense study of archival material that would damage the church and all its officers, end quote. That entire quote is from his diary. I want to repeat that last part again because this is something that Gregory Prince doesn't go on about. He does, I mean, he, he quotes it and then he, he drops it. He doesn't go into any kind of detail or explanation about this. The very first part of this quote is exactly what the whole book has been about, that uh, Leonard Arrington uh, wrote the history. He He's not uh, trying to just say one side of the history, the good side, and suppress the other side. And he says that, that our efforts have been to try to minimize the historical impact of those unfavorable facts. But it's the last part where we get another insight into him, which apparently he wasn't a complete crusader for complete openness. That there's other stuff that he and his staff found in deep archival research, which means deep in research in the restricted area. They found stuff. He doesn't say what it is, but he says that his job was also to put the lid on those other facts, to suppress those other facts. And why? Because he said they would damage the church and all its officers. So I'm not saying this to try and say something negative about Leonard Arrington. He was a remarkable historian. He was certainly more transparent than any historian had ever been in church history. But apparently his transparency had its limits. And there were some things that he found that he wasn't going to talk about and that in his words he put the lid on because he felt it would damage the church and all its office. And that's an interesting way of putting it because apparently he's speaking in the present tense. He's not just saying it would damage, you know, the reputation of Joseph Smith or something like that. He's speaking present tense. It would damage the church and all its office. So whatever he's talking about there, I don't know, but I couldn't let that quote pass as long as I was talking about this book. All right, one other thing. One other thing that's important to know is that uh, Leonard Arrington had a number of projects that he uh, saw uh, as wanting to accomplish as church historian. The, the biggest one, the biggest project was that he wanted to write a huge history of the church for its sesquicentennial celebration in 1980. And when I say a huge history, I mean a comprehensive history. This was going to be not one volume, not two volumes, but 16 volumes, one six volumes. And he had this whole thing arranged that had already been approved. He had selected different scholars who had expertise in different areas of church history. And he wanted to go back to the very beginnings of Mormonism with Joseph Smith and his youth, bring it all the way current up to 1980 and cover different episodes of church history in different volumes. The very first volume is, I believe, the only volume that was actually completed before the um, church history department was shut down uh, under Leonard Arrington. Um, and that was written by Richard Bushman, and it was about the early years of Joseph Smith. This is, according to Gregory Prince, this volume was completed in manuscript form. It was sent up to the apostles for their review, and it's the opinion of Greg Prince that it was this volume that really got this entire project of church history shut down because it contained all the stuff about Joseph Smith's treasure digging, his use of Peepstones, which then became seer stones, which later became the Urim and Thummim, but Peepstones to find treasure or to at least attempt to find treasure and using a Peepstone slash seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. 
All of this was in the manuscript because Richard Bushman is an actual historian. Well, this set the apostles off, and they decided to put the kibosh on the whole project. The re and Richard Bushman subsequently was able to publish that through a non-church uh, publisher. And that's, I believe it's called Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism, and that came out in the 1980s. So we know what it was that was in the manuscript that Richard Bushman wrote because it was published in that book. And actually, my understanding is that later on in 2005, when he published his magnum opus about Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling, that he took the uh, that book about the beginnings of Mormonism and he basically modified it just a little bit and edited it. But those are the first several chapters of Rough Stone Rolling where he talks about those. Okay, getting back to the point. The point is that Boyd K. Packer, as an apostle, and the other apostles as well, were privy to the contents of the manuscript by Richard Bushman as early as 1981 when Boyd K. Packer is giving this talk. So, although we may not be able to point specifically to what information the apostles knew that was damaging to the church in every respect, we know, or certainly have reason to know, that they knew this much about Joseph Smith and uh, his early history and the things that he did. Okay, having said all that and setting the stage... Now we're going to go to the talk, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect, by Elder Boyd K. Packer, August 22, 1981. He knows what he knows, and it's very clear from the talk that he knows that there's damaging information. He doesn't talk about what it is, because really, that's the point, isn't it? He doesn't talk about what it is, but there would be no point in giving this talk if he did not know about the damaging information, because he wants it suppressed, he wants it to not be talked about, and he wants the church teachers to join him in this strategy to not talk about damaging information. So I have uh, listed 14 points that jump out at me from this talk, and I'm going to go over them one at a time. Uh, let me just go ahead and give you a brief overview of the talk before I go through the 14 points. I think it'll make it easier. By the way, this talk is not hidden somewhere. It's not in the archives of the church. It was published in BYU Studies later that same year. It can be found on the internet, and you can go ahead and look it up if you want to check my work. It is the BYU Studies uh, article that I'll be quoting from. It's uh, BYU Studies, uh, volume 21, number 3 from 1981. Okay. The mantle is far, far greater than the intellect. That is a long, unwieldy title, and it's easy to skip by it. But in Mormon parlance, the mantle means prophetic leadership. It means church leadership. It comes back from a story in the Old Testament about... Elijah passing his mantle, which is like his cloak, onto Elijah. He's going to be the next prophet in line. So the mantle is prophetic leadership. In our church, we have 15 people who are called prophets. We've got the 12 apostles and the members of the first presidency. 15 apostles who are also known as prophets, seers, and revelators. And they are believed to be such and sustained as such. So 15 prophets, 15 people with the mantle. Specifically, it could be the president of the church. More generally, it can be any church leader who really is above you in the hierarchy, and certainly the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. So when he says the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect, what he's really saying is just kind of a more flowery way of saying the old saying, when church leaders speak, the thinking has been done. So when the mantle of prophetic leadership, priesthood leadership, is far, far greater than the intellect, whatever your thoughts are, no matter how much training you've had, it doesn't make any difference. It has to give way in light of what the leadership says. And general authorities and apostles have a funny way over time of speaking about themselves in the third person. What he's really saying is, my mantle. This is Boyd K. Packer. He's an apostle. What he's really saying is, my mantle is far, far greater than your intellect. The second point I want to bring up on this talk is the very first line, because it's ironic that in a talk, where he's going to tell all the church teachers that he wants them to suppress bad stuff in church history from the members of the church, he begins by saying that he's going to speak quite directly to them on the subject. I think that's kind of ironic, mainly because he says, I'm going to be very direct with you, that I don't want you to be direct with your students. And he says that he's going to be quite direct with them as a reward to them for their loyalty. Here's the first sentence. The fact that I speak quite directly on a most important subject will, I hope, be regarded as something of a tribute to you, who are our loyal, devoted, and inspired associates. So, 
The fact he's going to speak directly to them is a measure of their loyalty. Apparently, if someone isn't considered to be as loyal, devoted, and inspired, then it's okay to not be direct with them. In fact, to suppress certain things. Third one comes from the same page where Boyd K. Packer says that if a person has academic training, I'm paraphrasing now, if he has academic training, and especially if a person has extensive academic training, then they, they will, there will be a temptation for them to use their academic training and look at the church through the lens of their academic training. He says that's totally backward. What they should be doing is looking at their academic training through the lens of the church teachings. Okay, so here's the quote. It is an easy thing for a man with extensive academic training to measure the church using the principles he has been taught in his professional training as his standard. In my mind, it ought to be the other way around. A member of the church ought always, particularly if he has if he is pursuing extensive academic studies, to judge the professions of man against the revealed word of the Lord. So that's the end of the quote. Now, if you think about this, it really doesn't make any sense at all. Because let's just take an example of geology. If a person is a geologist and studying geology, is he really saying that as a geologist, he needs to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, that he needs to view his training in geology through the lens of what the church teaches? Because that's going to be the result. Is he talking about biology? Because if he's saying that a biologist has to view his training through the lens of what the church teaches, then is he saying a biologist has to believe that all human life began with Adam and Eve and that there was no death before the fall? Does it have to do with languages or linguistics? So if he's saying that a person who's studying linguistics has to view his training or her training through the lens of what the church teaches, is he saying that all linguists have to believe that languages originated from an event about 5,000 years ago, according to the biblical record, when the, the Tower of Babel was destroyed and all the languages of mankind were changed so that they couldn't understand each other. These are all obvious conclusions that would have to be drawn if we're going to apply what he says here. But the fact is, really, Boyd K. Packer isn't thinking about ge geology, he's not thinking about biology, he's not thinking about languages, he's thinking about one thing and one thing only, and that's history. And he's specifically thinking about church history and teaching church, church history, which he comes to in page three when he says, you seminary teachers and some of you institute and BYU men will be teaching the history of the church this school year. This is an unparalleled opportunity in the lives of your students to increase their faith and testimony of the divinity of this work. Your objective, your objective should be that they will see the hand of the Lord in every hour and every moment of the church from its beginning till now. And that's the end of the quote. So understand, the objective is not to tell the truth. And when I say the truth, I mean the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I was talking with a friend about this yesterday and he was trying to describe it as saying the true truth, which is a funny way of saying the truth, because the truth is the truth. The truth is everything. If you're telling only part of the truth, you're not telling the truth. So when I'm using the word truth, I'm talking about telling the whole truth. This is not what the objective is. The objective is not to tell the truth. The objective is to tell a version of history, a specific version of history that shows the hand of the Lord in every moment and every hour. This raises the question, what if there's some parts of church history that don't show the hand of the Lord in every moment and every hour? What if there are some parts of church history that might make you wonder where the hand of the Lord is in every moment and every hour? Well, the answer seems to be from Boyd K. Packer. These are the parts of church history that are not to be discussed, that are not to be written about, and that are to be actively suppressed. Now we go to point number four out of 14. Here I've got to back up for a second and let you know that uh, I've been going through the introduction to the talk, and now he breaks up his talk into four sections, the four main sections, and he calls them each a caution, which he's giving as an apostle. The first caution is my point number four. So first caution, it's in italics at the beginning of the section. It says, there is no such thing as an accurate, objective history of the church without consideration of the spiritual powers that attend this work. This first caution, I think, standing on its own is not particularly objectionable. I think that it makes sense if you're going to talk about church history. Yeah, you're going to mention that Joseph Smith received, or at least said he received, a, a vision of Jesus Christ. 
uh, or perhaps of Jesus Christ and God the Father, depending upon which version you're, but that he received some kind of divine manifestation, that an angel appeared to him, gold plates translating by the gift and power of God, that he made these claims. And that makes sense that any accurate objective history would include at least those claims. So the first caution that he gives is really not objectionable. Where it becomes objectionable is when it is put in context with everything that follows. Because the context of everything that follows is, Boyd K. Packer is not interested in having church history taught accurately or objective. He wants only one side of it taught, the faith-promoting side. That is not accurate. That is inaccurate. And teaching only the side that favors your church is not objective. That is subjective. In fact, later on here, we'll get to the quote later in the talk, he specifically comes out and said, says, we are one-sided. We are not neutral in this church. We are one-sided. So he will later on admit he's being anything but impartial. He's being anything but objective. And he's telling the teachers to be anything but impartial and objective. So when you read this first caution in the context of the rest of the talk, we start getting into this Orwellian play on words and this double think, this double speak, where war means peace, uh, love means hate, accurate means inaccurate, objective means subjective, impartial means partial. And so that's my main objection to this first caution. On its face, there's not a problem. It's only when it's taken in context with everything else that Boyd K. Packer is saying that it becomes a problem, at least in my mind. So if we go to point number five, this is in the same section under caution four. Point number five, here we come with a quote that is aimed specifically at Leonard Arrington. And that's why I went to the time going through that book and a little bit of the history so you can understand this. I'd read this talk before by Boyd K. Packer, and it was only after reading this biography that some of these quotes now leap out at me. So he says this. This is on page four. Those who have the spirit, by which he means himself, those who have the spirit can recognize very quickly whether something is missing in a written church history. This in spite of the fact that the author may be a highly trained historian and the reader is not. Now, the highly trained historian here is Leonard Arrington, anybody like him. The reader is not. He's talking about himself. He's not trained as a historian, but he has the spirit. He has the mantle. He's an apostle. He can tell whether anything's missing from a history about the church. And then he goes on. And I might add, we have been getting a great deal of experience in this regard in the past few years. Yeah, he's talking exactly about Leonard Arrington and his crew of real historians who, as Boyd K. Packer is speaking, are in the process of packing things up and getting ready to move out by the next year. Okay, going now to number six of my list of 14. This is on the next page, page five, and this is the second caution. This is probably the most quoted portion of this talk. His second caution, there is a temptation for the writer or the teacher of church history to want to tell everything, whether it is worthy or faith-promoting or not. Some things that are true are not very useful. There's a number of questions that this raises. The first thing is, when he says some, some things that are true are not very useful, useful to whom? Useful for what purpose? And in the first part, he says, there is a temptation for the writer or the teacher of ch church history to want to tell everything. This is remarkable to me. Notice the use of language. Generally, telling everything is considered a good quality. It's called being honest. It's something the church teaches its members to do. But Boyd K. Packer phrases this as a temptation. Temptation is usually wanting to do something that is sinful, not wanting to do something that is virtuous. Telling half the truth, being deceptive, is sinful, at least in the church's eyes. Telling the whole truth is usually cast as being virtuous. That's something to be promoted. And yet he calls wanting to tell everything a temptation. There's something that um, I do need to bring up at this point because I don't want to forget it. Because um, there's a definition that the church uses of lying. And Boyd K. Packer doesn't talk about it in his talk, but it's in the Gospel Principles Manual, chapter 31. It's on a, a lesson on honesty. The Gospel Principles Manual is a manual that is for investigators of the church. It's for new members of the church. It lays out the very fundamental, basic teachings of the church. And chapter 31 deals with the subject of honesty. Here's the paragraph, because it talks about that there's different ways you can lie. You don't just have to tell someone something that is absolutely not true to lie. You can lie in other ways. 
Here's what it says. There are many other forms of lying. When we speak untruths, we are guilty of lying. We can also intentionally deceive others by a gesture or a look, by silence, or by telling only part of the truth, period. End of quote. So, although I'm going to try and avoid saying that what Elder Boyd K. Packer is doing is not only lying, but telling others to lie, I have to point out that according to the definition of lying in an official LDS manual, which presumably was approved by Boyd K. Packer at some point, or other apostles and church leaders, silence can be lying, or not telling the other side of the story can be lying. And it's certainly deceptive to tell only part of the story. So I wanted to bring that up here, just for a little context. So he says, some things that are true are not very useful. Also, skipping down a paragraph, he says, the writer or the teacher who has an exaggerated loyalty to the theory that everything must be told is laying a foundation for his own judgment. First part is that, once again, he's not calling it a temptation here like he did before. Instead, he's talking about this theory that everything must be told, this theory that people should be honest and tell the whole truth, is an exaggerated loyalty. If you want to tell the whole truth, now, this is an exaggerated loyalty to a theory that everything must be told. But now he goes on and he starts making it personal. And here's where he starts turning the screws on the CEST. He is an apostle of the Lord. He's giving them the marching orders that he wants them to deceive the members of the church that they teach by telling them only one half of the history, only the whitewashed part of the history. And he's telling them, if you don't do this, then you're laying a foundation for your own judgment. So now he's bringing in eternal consequences and letting his listeners know, if you don't go along with me on this, you're going to have a bad time on Judgment Day. This is the beginning of the threats that he makes throughout this talk to his listeners. And they will continue fast and furious as we proceed. Going on now to my point number seven, which is on page seven. And there's two paragraphs here. And here's where the threats really start cropping up. I'm quoting from him. That historian or scholar who delights in pointing out the weaknesses and frailties of present or past leaders destroys faith. Once again, notice how he frames it. It's a historian or scholar who delights in pointing out the weakness. He's the one who destroys faith. One wonders what would happen if a historian didn't delight in it, if he just pointed out the weaknesses because it was the truth. Would that have any different effect on faith? I don't think so. He goes on. A destroyer of faith, particularly one within the church, and more particularly one who is employed specifically to build faith, places himself in great spiritual jeopardy. So really what he's saying is that even if you're not a member of the church, and you've never been a member of the church, and you're writing church history and talking about some of the bad stuff, you're in spiritual jeopardy. But it's even worse if you're a member of the church and you do it. And it's even worse if you've been employed by the church specifically to teach the whitewash history and you don't go along with it places himself in great spiritual jeopardy. He is serving the wrong master. Because, of course, if you're not serving Boyke Packer, it's got to be the wrong master. What he means, though, is he's talking about the adversary. He's talking about the devil. He's talking about, I don't know, could it be Satan? Yes, and he's going to make that explicit later on. He is serving the wrong master, and unless he repents, okay, you've got to repent of telling the truth. It's a grievous sin. And unless he repents, he will not be among the faithful in the eternities. Once again, eternal consequences. It's not just your job, pal. This is eternal consequences. And if you don't join me in teaching only half of the truth, only half of the church history, engaging in a pattern of deception to the members of the church about what their history really is, if you don't do that, you're going to go to hell. That's what this is saying. He goes on in the very next paragraph. One who chooses to follow the tenets of his profession regardless of how they may injure the church or destroy the faith of those not ready for advanced history, is himself in spiritual jeopardy. This is an important point for him. He repeats it. Spiritual jeopardy appears twice. Then he says, if that one is a member of the church, he has broken his covenants. So now you're a covenant breaker too. I don't remember being in the temple and taking a covenant to be dishonest or be deceptive. But apparently there are some covenants that Boyke Packer knows about along those lines. And if you refuse to be deceptive, then you're breaking those covenants. He says, if, there, if that one is a member of the church, he has broken his covenants 
and will be accountable. There it is again. After all, now he waxes poetic about your damnation. After all of the tomorrows of mortality have been finished, he will not stand where he might have stood. Okay, he's not going to be in the celestial kingdom with all the deceivers. He's going to be somewhere else with the people who tell the truth, apparently. So that's number seven, and that's the quote from page seven. Also, before I leave this, notice that throughout this talk, there is the implicit understanding in everything that Boyd K. Packer says is that the truth, and by this, once again, I mean the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, which is what the truth is. There is an implicit understanding that the truth destroys faith. Think about that. What kind of a church is it that believes knowing the truth about it will destroy faith in it? Jesus didn't say, you will know the truth, and the truth will destroy your faith. He's recorded as saying, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Going on now to number eight. Ah, the third caution. This is on page eight. And it's also point number eight in my list of 14. Third caution. In an effort to be objective, impartial, and scholarly, a writer or a teacher may unwittingly be giving equal time to the adversary. This is where Satan comes in. He makes it explicit. In an effort to be objective, impartial, and scholarly, what he means is telling the truth. We can't forget that. In an effort to tell the truth, to be objective, a person may be giving equal time to the adversary. Because apparently, it's Satan who wants the whole truth to be told, and it's God who only wants part of the truth. Goes on now, skipping a paragraph, quoting again, still under point number eight, in the church we are not neutral. Remember I referenced this before, before when he said uh, about being impartial? Well, here he makes it clear he doesn't want church teachers to be impartial. He wants them to be completely partial. In the church we are not neutral, we are one-sided. There is a war going on, I'm still quoting, there is a war going on and we are engaged in it. It is the war between good and evil and we are belligerents defending the good. We are therefore obliged to give preference to and protect all that is represented in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have made covenants to do it. He wouldn't want people to forget about the covenants they're breaking if they tell the truth. This is a very dangerous path that Elder Packer is heading down. And the reason it's dangerous is because what he's saying is that God is the being who deals in half-truths. And Satan, apparently, is the being who deals in telling the whole truth. This is completely reversed from what we generally understand in Mormonism. We understand that Satan wanted to take away the agency of man in the premortal existence in the Grand Canyon Heaven. He wanted to take away the agency of man. He was going to force all to be saved. So I just want to make a couple of comments here about the relationship between agency and information. Because if you restrict information, you restrict a person's agency. Let's say you're, you're going to buy a used car. You go down to a used car salesman. Uh, you ask him what he's got that's good. He tells you, here's this great car. It's got all these wonderful things about it. Uh, it was only driven on Sundays by a grandmother and uh, everything's hunky-dory about the car. Well, this is a great car. There's nothing bad about it. It's only good. So you buy the car, you drive it down the road, it starts falling to pieces. Well, of course, the problem was is that the salesman knew about the bad stuff about the car, but he didn't tell you the bad stuff about the car because he wanted you to buy it. And he knew if he told you the bad stuff about the car, you would not be so eager to put the money down. The relationship is... By restricting the information to only one side of the story, it removed the agency of the buyer of the car to make an informed decision based upon all the facts. And if the buyer of the car had known all the facts, the buyer of the car might have made a different decision to not buy that car. So restricting knowledge restricts agency. If God is the one who, as Elder Packer says, wants only part of the story told, then his God is one who's restricting agent. If it is Satan who wants the whole truth to be told, then Satan is the one who is empowering people with agents. This is completely backward from what Mormonism is supposed to stand for. God is the one who's in favor of agents. It's Satan who is supposed to be the father of lies. It's Satan who is supposed to uh, be reputed to tell 99 truths in order to tell one lie. Now Satan's apparently the guy who's telling 100 truths, and God's telling 50 truths, and he's not talking about the other 50 lies. So everything's upside down here. When it's in the Garden of Eden, what was the name of the tree that Adam and Eve partook of? It was the tree of knowledge that gave them agency. So this is a war 
in Elder Packer's mind. As he says, there is a war going on. And unfortunately, in Elder Packer's war, information is ammunition. And truth is the first casual. Going on now, I'm turning the pages. Number nine. Number nine. Uh, this is on page nine. Quoting, President Joseph Fielding Smith. So now Boyd T. Packer is going to quote to Joseph Fielding Smith as an authority on this. President Joseph Fielding Smith pointed out that it would be a foolish general, once again, pursuing the war metaphor, it would be a foolish general who would give access to all of his intelligence to his enemy. It is neither expected nor necessary for us to accommodate those who seek to retrieve references from our sources. He's talking about the restricted section. It is neither expected nor necessary for us to accommodate those who seek to retrieve references from our sources, distort them, and use them against them. Well, He's talking once again about Leonard Arrington and how they had been doing the deep archival research. And they had been copying documents, some of it by hand, and that information was getting out. He'll return to that later in the talk. First off, what uh, Elder Packer's talking about, he says, uh, retrieve the references from our sources, distort them and use them against us. No, he's not concerned about them being distorted. He's just concerned about them getting out into the public. They're not being distorted. They're being used in order to tell the truth. And from his point of view, that means using that information against us in the church. It's also a bit ironic that he cites the Joseph Fielding Smith for this, because Joseph Fielding Smith is the person who was church historian back in the 1830s, back before they needed to be a historian, to be a church historian. He was a general authority. He was an apostle. And he's the individual who stumbled upon the 1832 account of Joseph Smith's first vision, the first account that he wrote down, the one that's written in his own hand, and the one that alarmingly, at least to him, mentioned only one being appearing to him. And this was so upsetting to Joseph Fielding Smith that he cut the pages out of the book in which that was handwritten and took those pages, put them in his personal vault in the church historian's office so nobody could see it except for very high clearance. And then he took what was left of the book with the pages cut out, stuck that back in the restricted section. So now this was super restricted. Anyway, there's an irony that I see in him quoting to Joseph Fielding Smith who was very, very into suppressing information. And he went even further, not just by uh, not talking about it and telling people not to talk about it. He would cut it out of documents and then put it in a place where nobody could see it. Boyd K. Packer goes on. He says, oh, this is his analogy. Okay, and this is where he's talking directly about Arrington again. And you have to know what's going on to understand that he's talking about Arrington. I mean, I can't read his mind, but it's pretty obvious to me. But he gives this extended analogy and he talks about the church is a corporation, which may not surprise anybody. But he talks about the church as a corporation in this analogy. And then he talks about the church historian as being the corporation's lawyer. He sees the historian as being the lawyer for the church in this analogy. And that the lawyer owes duties to the corporation that he represents to keep secret stuff secret. Okay, I'm going to read this very quickly, all right? Suppose that a well-managed business corporation, that's the church, is threatened by takeover from another corporation. See, always this battle imagery. Enemies out there that must be fought. And we're really suppressing information because we're in a war. And we don't want the enemy to find out the truth about our organism. Suppose that the corporation bent on the takeover is determined to drain off all its assets and then dissolve this company. You can rest assured that the threatened company, the church, that the threatened company would hire legal counsel to protect itself. Here's where he starts making the reference to airing tonight. Can you imagine that attorney under contract to protect the company, having fixed in his mind that he must not really take sides, that he must be impartial? You see where it's getting obvious? He's talking about the church historian, Leonard Arrington. Suppose that when the records of the company he has been employed to protect, i.e. the church, are opened for him to prepare his brief. So he gets access to the restricted files and he gets to find out what's in there. He collects evidence and passes some of it to the attorneys of the enemy company. This is how Boyd K. Packer views a historian looking at resources and then writing real history. That he is taking secrets from the company that he is duty-bound to protect and giving it to the enemy. His own firm, I'm going back to the quote, his own firm may then be in great jeopardy because of his disloyal conduct. Boyd K. Packer sees Leonard Arrington as being disloyal. And then he asks this question, which he thinks is rhetorical. Do you not recognize a breach of ethics or integrity or morality? Now, this analogy has nothing to do with historians. 
it might make sense with a lawyer, and I am one, so I can perhaps relate to that. Yes, if a lawyer did this, it could be a breach of ethics or integrity or morality. But that isn't what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a historian. And a historian has a duty to tell history. And history involves the truth to the very best extent that the historian is able to establish or approximate the truth based upon the documents available to the historian. That is what the duty of a historian is. So when he says, do you not recognize a breach of ethics? Well, a historian would breach his ethics if he did not tell the truth. I don't know if an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ breaches his ethics by not telling all the truth. But that's something that I'll leave for another day and for other people to decide. But I know that for a historian, it's a breach of ethics to not tell the truth. And for a historian, it's a breach of integrity to not tell the truth. And for a historian, it's a breach of morality to not tell the truth. But apparently for Boyd K. Packer, and he presumes all the teachers he's talking to, and the church he represents, there is no breach of ethics or integrity or morality in being deceptive about church history, because that's the course of conduct he follows and the course of conduct he wants his listeners to follow. Last paragraph of page 9, he gets in another slam at anybody who disagrees with him. He calls them a traitor. Anybody who tells the truth is a traitor to the cause. Only if you tell half the truth or whitewash are you loyal. Here's what he says. I think you can see the point I am making. Those of you who are employed by the church have a special responsibility to build faith, not destroy it. If you do not do that, but in fact accommodate the enemy, who is the destroyer of faith, you become, in that sense, a traitor to the cause you have made covenants to protect. So there's the quote. And it's obvious that he believes that Leonard Arrington was not only a covenant breaker, that he was uh, unethical, had no integrity, and was immoral, but that he was also a traitor to the cause. That was Boyd K. Packer's view of a real historian who told the truth about churches. Finally, and this is still under point number nine, page 10. Those who have carefully purged their work of any religious faith in the name of academic freedom or so-called honesty. Here we have it again. It's not just honesty if you're going to be open and honest. It's so-called honesty, always the pejorative term. Those who have carefully purged their work of any religious faith in the name of academic freedom or so-called honesty ought not expect to be accommodated in their researches or to be paid by the church to do it. That's a direct slam specifically at Leonard Arrington, who's on his way out. He's not going to be paid by the church anymore to do that, and he's not going to be accommodated in his researches to do it. And it's also an implicit threat to everybody who's listening to him who is paid by the church to be a church instructor. They should not expect to be paid by the church to be honest and to tell the truth about church history. Point number 10 is the very next paragraph on page 10. Now, I made reference before to the fact that Leonard Arrington and other people who worked in his office had gone to the archives. They did deep archival research as much as they could. There's apparently a great deal of resources there. D. Michael Quinn, I believe, told a story about working during the time of Leonard Arrington and going in and just handwriting out, copying from manuscripts that he was able to see. So it's not like they're taking actual manuscripts out of the archives. What they're doing is copy them and frequently copying them by hand and taking those research copies, handwritten copies out and using them in research. This has really bugged Boyd K. Packer, so much so that he says this. This is my point number 10. Quote, rest assured also that you will get little truth and less benefit from those who steal documents or those who deal in stolen goods. I don't understand why it is that if a document is taken out of the archive, I don't recall that happening in this history. I'm not going to say it never happened, but I think that really what he's talking about is legitimate church historians legitimately hand copying from documents and archives. I don't see, think, I don't know why he says you're not going to get a lot of truth out of that when they're legitimate documents. And you will get less benefit from them, apparently because they're stolen. So let me start again. Rest assured also that you will get little truth and less benefit from those who steal documents or those who deal in stolen goods. There have always been, and we have among us today, those who seek entrance to restricted libraries and files. He's talking about the church's libraries and files. Those who seek entrance to restricted libraries and files to secretly copy material. See, he sort of tips his hand there. He's really talking about copying material, not taking the document. We have them among us today, those who seek entrance to restricted libraries and files to secretly copy material 
and steal it away in hopes of finding some detail that has not as yet been published. Well, that's what historians do. That's basically what researchers do. They want to try and find some new detail, which by its nature would not have been published. History is not supposed to be the practice of just continuing to regurgitate the same things that have been known from generation to generation. It's supposed to be expanding, and hopefully we're learning new things. But he makes it sound like it's a bad thing. Steal it away uh, in hopes of finding some detail that has not yet been published. This in order that they may sell it for money or profit in some way from its publication or inflate an ego by being first to publish it. So what he wants to do is give and attribute the worst motivations to any historian who's actually doing his or her job by trying to find new information. They must be doing it so they can, they can get money or profit from it in some way from its publication. Just a little side note, I got a, a text message from my son last night where he was showing all these different books that had been written by general authorities and the prices that they were selling for. I think that there's more than just historians who are selling publications for money in this church or profit uh, in some way from its publication or inflate an ego by being first to publish it. That's how he closes that quote. Inflate an ego by being first to publish it. I can't speak about inflated egos, though some people think I have a very inflated ego. All I can say is that if a person is convinced that they speak for God, chances are their ego may be a little inflated as well. This this whole quote also begs another question, where he's talking about people coming in and copying things out of restricted libraries. It begs the question, why is this damaging information being kept in restricted libraries and files in the first place? Apparently, somebody has already figured out it's damaging and they want to limit access to it. Number 11, on page 11. This is the fourth caution. This is the fourth and final caution. It's my point number 11. I'm sorry, I know that's probably confusing, but that's the way it is. Fourth caution. Oh, this is the caution where he says, look, just because it's been in print before, if it's damaging information, don't repeat it, don't publish it again. Because look, if it was published in Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History, it's out there, but don't be repeating it just because it's in print, because you know, that book could go out of print. And if it goes out of print, then that information can be forgotten. But if you keep repeating it and publishing it again and again, then it's not going to go out of print. Here's how he puts it. The final caution concerns the idea that so long as something is already in print, so long as it is available from another source, there is nothing out of order in using it in writing or speaking or teaching. And he says, surely you can see the fallacy in that. And then he goes on and talks about uh, his theory that if you just ignore it, and if you don't talk about it, if you don't write about it, if you don't emphasize it, if you don't teach it, then that stuff can just go by the wayside and go down the memory hole. You see, the printing press made destroying documents and suppressing information by burning books a lot more difficult. And even in 1981, though it's a long time ago, Boyd K. Packer is not able to go out and destroy all the books that have damaging information about the church. That's not an option. So they can't go out and destroy the books with the bad information in it, but they can refuse to repeat that bad information, either orally or in writing. The hope is that by not repeating it, not emphasizing it, it will be forgotten. And this particular caution, this instruction by Boyd K. Packer, let me say a couple of other things before I go to this other part. He emphasizes on page 12, he repeats the same message, do not spread disease germs. That's what he says, do not spread disease germs, exclamation point, in the printed version in BYU studies. So here he likens telling the truth to spreading disease germs, at least truth that he feels is damaging to the reputation of the church. Also, uh, halfway down page 12, he says, some things that are in print go out of print. That's his whole goal. Don't repeat it because it can go out of print. And the old statement, good riddance to bad rubbish, might apply. Now, when I read this, I thought about a kind of famous interview that uh, President Hinckley, Gordon B. Hinckley, had given back in 1997 in Time magazine. And he was asked about the teaching from Joseph Smith and also from Lorenzo Snow that as man is, God once was, that God was once a man on a prior world like we are now on this world. And the interviewer asked President Hinckley if that were true. And I think he gave a response that many who are listening already know what he said. But here's the... Um, Here's the transcript. Question. Just another related question that comes up is the statements in the King Follett Discourse by the Prophet. 
Answer, this is Gordon Hinckley, says, yeah. Question, about that. God the Father was once a man as we were. This is something that Christian writers are always addressing. Is this the teaching of the church today, that God the Father was once a man like we are? Gordon Hinckley's answer is illuminating, mainly because it's a huge dodge and he doesn't get around to answering it. What he says is, quote, I don't know that we teach it. I don't know that we emphasize it. I haven't heard it discussed for a long time in public discourse. I don't know. And he goes on to say, I don't know all the circumstances under which that statement was made. I understand the philosophical background behind it, but I don't know a lot about it, and I don't know that others know a lot about it. Period. End of quote. Reading this before, it was obvious that President Hinckley was dodging the question and not answering it. But when I look at what Elder Packer says the fourth caution is about not repeating things, that we want to go out of the memory, down the memory hole, that we want to go out of style, out of fashion, out of circulation. That's exactly what Gordon B. Hinckley is saying here. He's asked about the teaching, do you believe this, that God was once a man? And what he says is, I don't know that we teach it. I don't know that we emphasize it. I haven't heard it discussed for a long time in public discourse. Is he just grasping for words to try and come up with something to say while he's busy dodging the question? Or is Gordon Hinckley actually setting forth a strategy that the church has when they want things to not be talked about and they simply stop talking? It's radio silence. Going back to Elder Packer's talk. So that was number 11, the fourth caution. Number 12, we're get almost to the end now. Number 12 is where he lists the qualifications. His personal qualifications for a good church historian. Here's what Elder Packer said. You don't need any training. You don't have to have any historical background. You don't need any education. His three qualifications are, and he goes into some uh, about half a page, but I'm going to summarize them here on page 13. He says, you have to have a testimony that Joseph Smith is a prophet. You have to have a testimony that the LDS Church is the only true and living church. Can I hang on just for a second on number two? Why is it that the only true and living church is so concerned about the truth being told about it? Just a random question. And the third qualification is, last but not least, that you have to believe that the current leaders, a.k.a. Boyd Packer, the current leaders of the church are prophets, seers, and revelators. And he makes a remarkable claim about revelation guiding the church. He says revelation doesn't just come when we say there's a revelation. Revelation comes for every single thing that the church does through its leaders, through its decisions, through its policies, through its pronouncements. If they come from the headquarters of the church, their revelation, and it's the third qualification as a historian that you need to believe that's true. Okay, here's what he says. Third qualification. Do you believe that the successors to the prophet Joseph Smith were and are prophets, seers, and revelators? That revelation from heaven directs the decisions, policies, and pronouncements that come from the headquarters of the church. Have you come to the settled conviction by the Spirit that these prophets truly represent the Lord. And once again, talking about himself in third person, that I, Boyd K. Packer, truly represent the Lord, because what I'm telling you comes from God, and you better obey it, because if you don't, there's going to be hell to pay in the next life, and you may be looking for a new job in this one. Number 13. Oh, this is where he comes right out and says it. This is on page 14 of the BYU Studies article. Quote, we are not free, we the leadership, we are not free to do some of the things that scholars think would be so reasonable. Like, tell the truth. I added that. We are not free to do some of the things that scholars think would be so reasonable. For the Lord will not permit us to do them. And it is his church. He presides over it. So if you got a problem with me telling you that you need to be deceptive in how you teach church history and be dishonest about it, don't talk to me. Talk to God. Because it's his idea. I just speak for him. God is the one who wants you to hide the truth. God is the one who wants you to tell only part of the story. God is the one who wants you to be deceptive in teaching church history. And at the end of this talk, one wonders, who exactly is this God that Elder Packer worships? Finally, going to point number 14. It's the last page. It's actually the last several pages. Boyd K. Packer, at the end of his talk, gives an extended call to repentance to wayward church historians. And he summarizes it here on page 17. He says, To you who may have lost your way, 
come back, exclamation. We know how that can happen. We have walked that path of research and study. So it's a, a long call to repentance because when people who are members of the church are committed to telling the truth, that's something that needs to be repented. Come back to us in the church. Stop telling the truth. We will receive you again with open arms. Stop breaking covenants by telling the truth. Stop being on Satan's side by telling the truth. You can be a member again of the LDS Church in good standing on one condition. Stop telling the truth. So those are the 14 points that I drew out of that talk. In conclusion, we've gone down a lot of different little sideways in this presentation, but the main point is the one that I don't want to get away from. This talk proves conclusively, given in 1981, that church leadership at the highest levels knew damaging information about the church and took active steps to suppress it, not only themselves, but enlisting the aid of all church teachers throughout the church to suppress that history. And by the way, for those of you keeping track, that's called a conspiracy. Boyd K. Packer is not just suppressing it himself, he's enlisting the aid of hundreds of church teachers do the same thing. It is a conspiracy to hide the truth. It's a conspiracy to deceive the members about what church history really is. And they have known about it for decades and have actively engaged in a cover-up of that information. And not only that, Elder Packer enlists the aid of the teachers to help him with this cover-up under penalty of losing their eternal exaltation. That's about all for tonight. Until next time... This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.